One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, You have to understand human nature. How are you doing? It's David here, and you're listening to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week tries to make economics a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit less jargony, and hopefully a little bit more relevant to all of us. Now, this week, I want to talk about the China. America trade war, but through the prism of my experiences this last seven days in Africa. I've been in Nairobi for most of the last week. I've seen and heard lots of stuff. I want to share that with you simply because Africa is not only now a very important place, but over the course of the next 60 years, it's going to change dramatically. And by the year 2080, One person in every five in this world will be African. We're delighted to announce that the Dublin Podcast Festival have debased their currency profoundly by allowing John and I get on stage on the 28th of November, a Thursday, in Vicar Street for a bit of chat, a bit of economics, a bit of malarkey, and hopefully a wee bit of lateral thinking. Join us if you fancy it. Have a gander at ticketmaster.ie. Dublin Podcast Festival, Thursday, 28th November, Vicar Street. See you there. Now, as always, I'm joined by your man. He's over here. What's the story, Head? All good? All good, as always. All good. How was your week, man? My week was good. Yeah, it was actually very good. Got a lot of work done. We're still working on the book. Hey. (laughs) That's, by the way, the Renaissance Nation, the book I published last year. We've updated it. And we're going to publish it on audiobook in the coming weeks if John can get his shit together. But that's... Yeah, it's, it, we're getting there. Anyway, getting you, you, were, you were on your travels. How are they? Meeting anyone interesting? Look, I tell you, this podcast is beginning to change my life in many ways. Right. I didn't realize, you know, like we, we started this, saying, eh, let's have a chat every now and then, uh, every week. But it's actually created a community. So I was down in the weirdest place in the world. So I was down working with Oxfam this week in Nairobi. I've never been to Kenya before. I've never been to Nairobi before. I'm there. Wild place, isn't it? You've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about your night there. Uh, Well, (laughs) it was uh, myself and my mate Joe had 24 hours there, which was a wild 24 hours, which I won't go into the details, but uh, we, uh, yeah, we certainly, we ended up in a restaurant called Carnivore, where they served us And you ate everything. We ate everything, which was zebra, heart of beast, and crocodile, and then you had a flag on the table, and as long as the flag was still standing, they kept serving you stuff until you put the flag down. 
We rolled wow. out of the place and onto the plane home. It was a fantastic time. We also went to mass there and couldn't get out of it. <laughs> okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm all ears here. You, a, you went to mass, B, you couldn't get out of it. I know, I know. Had you, you or had you not smoked one of those massive African I, I, numbers before that? No, we got into town, got out of a taxi, and across the street we heard this amazing singing, like really incredible gospel singing. So we went, we were just drawn to it, and we arrived in, and we opened the door and there was this full-on gospel mask going, really loud, guys really going for it, clapping, hooting and hollering the whole lot. And people grabbed us, grabbed me, shoved me in one side, grabbed Joe, shoved him in the other side. And we were stuck there. We were stuck there for well over, it was about an hour and a half. And myself and Joe were kind of looking at each other going, how do we get out of here? And, you <laughs> and we, we had to get out. And we had to like climb over people. They were really unimpressed that we were leaving. Sounds, sounds, like, we're mass, leaving God. sounds like mass in Monkstown, yeah. circa 1981. <laughs> Singing was amazing, though. Well, look, listen, maybe off mic, we will discuss the intricacies. We will your, indeed. If you're a night or two in Nairobi, <laughs> maybe you just don't want to tell your kids just yet the sort of delinquent. So go on, tell us, you tell us your. Well, your I'll tell trip. you a funny thing. So I, I tweeted out, you know, I'm in Nairobi at this conference. Fascinating, hadn't been here before. And I get a tweet back. Somebody says, look, are you in Nairobi? Why don't you meet up with us? Mm. We, we listen to the podcast. Right. And I, oh, looked, nice. I looked at the Twitter handle. And the Twitter handle, do you remember this Lex Romania, which was the law of Rome, which governed the entire Mediterranean right. for all the Roman Empire? Yeah. Lex Romania. And actually, most of our law is based on it, right? Right, yeah, yeah. But this Twitter handle was Lex Somalia. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> nice. whoever's done this got a good sense of humor. So I tweeted back. I said, I'll DM you and let's see. And it ended up with this amazing woman. And she said, I'll meet you in a bar. I said, Grand. She said, There's a couple of us. I said, Grand. Ends up her and. Could be a bit dodgy. No, and actually, if I took a fella with me, I actually said to one of the Oxfam fellas. Yeah. And he said, Can I go with you? I said, I said, Grand. For security. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Well, I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so you know, I'm such an open Egypt. I'd say, Yeah, yeah, we'll go for a drink, whatever. Anyway, it ends up she's there with her Irish boyfriend. So she's from Somalia. And her fella is a fella called Brian. That's the only name I didn't get the second name right. from Wicklow, who used to be in the Irish Navy in Somalia sent over by the UN to police right. the pirates. Wow. And now works for the UN again. Really interesting couple. We had a total hoot. Couple of jars, not many, but we had a really, really nice time. And they told me lots and lots about East Africa. But the thing that really I remember most of them, they were talking about Ethiopians. Because mm -hmm. Somalia was at war with Ethiopia. Yeah. And she was saying it was a little bit silly because Somalia has maybe 15 million people and Ethiopia is 100 million. So she said that was a bit of a dumb Somalian move right. to declare war on Ethiopia. But she had lived in New York. It was Al-Shabaab though, wasn't it? it was... Well, Al-Shabaab, we were talking about Al-Shabaab. That's right. the interesting thing. And she was saying, look, Al-Shabaab bombed one of the hotels beside us. But she told me something interesting. I, I love these little bits of trivial but rather useless but I think brilliant mm -hmm. pieces of information mm -hmm. about Ethiopians I said what do you think of Ethiopians she was chatting she said oh they're very interesting people she says do you know that in Ethiopia it's 2019 now in the rest of the world it's 2012 in Ethiopia at the moment what? the calendar is seven years behind us and I said why is that she goes because they took out the seven years they were occupied by Italy <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I said, like, it was like, it didn't exist. It didn't happen. So the Ethiopians, 
have taken it out. <laughs> and it's just bizarre. Isn't that beautiful? So this is the weird shit that I learned when I'm on my travels, John. <laughs> that must confuse everybody. So that's my gem for the week. That's my gem for the week. Brilliant. And so come here to me then. Uh, so you have been away for the week. Yeah. You know, so I've been keeping up to date with uh, Brexit and stuff. Give us a quick Brexit hit. Because we have to. Because we, we, we have to. We have to. Look, it's interesting. I've My Brexit take for the week is on the DUP. Right. The DUP are a crowd that never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> this is exactly what I've thought about them now, right? Every time they are presented with an opportunity, they miss it. Yeah. So the latest one, the first one was the Good Friday Agreement, which yeah, they, of course, yeah. didn't support. The latest one is now the opportunity that they would have had, and they still have, to create a special economic zone in the north between Britain and the EU, they would attract in enormous amounts of trade, investment. For example, the trip to Ethiopia ended in Copenhagen. I'll tell you about that in a second. Okay, yeah. But I was walking around Copenhagen. Copenhagen is an amazing city. It is. But its source is the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League was a league of city-states that existed in the Middle Ages from Bruges in Belgium all the way, imagine this, all the way to Riga in the Baltic. And each of these states, there was Gdansk and Riga, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Groningen, Amsterdam. What year are we talking? We're talking 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, right? These were city-states that basically traded with everybody. It was called the Hanseatic League. Extraordinary period of merchants running successful cities, trading with each other, having free trade based around the Baltic and the North Atlantic in terms of around the, up over Denmark and down towards Belgium. It's always struck me that Northern Ireland could be a Hanseatic place. A free trading, open place. You do business with everybody. That's what's on the table for the DUP if they would just see it. But yet, they never miss an opportunity to miss an they're opportunity. They're just stuck in the past. But that's exactly what they are. Yeah. And it's awful. Or maybe they're banking on this uh, bridge that they're talking about building. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Boris Bridge. It's the, they're calling the Boris Bridge. The Boris Bridge from the Mull of Kintyre to... to Larne, uh, isn't it? Or? Well, it would be Stanmore to Larne, but I mean, the shortest thing would be Mull of Kintyre to Ballycastle, actually. Right. Where my father was born. So ah, we bit about this negative. Okay, right. But uh, look, that's all pipe dreams for extreme unionists. As, you, as is, your father would say, it's a cod. It's a cod. He used to say to my mother, my mother's name's Alice, by the way, he'd say, to, that's a cod, Alice. <laughs> that's a cod. Now, everything was a cod uh, from washing machines to dishwashers. <laughs> Remote controls were a cod in our house. <laughs> I remember. I think Colour TV might have been a cod yeah, as well, but definitely, was. Definitely, was. definitely the remote control <laughs> yeah. was a cod. Now, I don't know why, but there you go. So that's my, that's my Brexit hit. Yeah. Okay? Okay. I cool. won't say it's quite a cod, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's the DUP and them never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Okay, Mike. So let's talk about Africa, your trip to Africa. And a little while ago, we did a podcast on China and soft power in Africa. So now that you've been over there, you were talking about Africa, China, US trade war and technology. Give us a rundown of that. Well, I mean, the technology thing. So it's an update on what is happening in Africa. Mm. 
the update from the from the last time I was there, which I was in South Africa. But I was I was very intrigued. I'm always very intrigued because I was over there working with Oxfam. I'm always intrigued about how people view poverty. I'm not saying intrigued. I mean in terms of definition. Yeah. And what struck me was I was on the flight down, and normally, John, on flights, I try to read books. I try to take those mm. times if I'm on a flight to read a book. But yeah. I was reading Knackered, and I just said, okay, turn on the movies. And I saw the movie Vice oh, about yeah. Dick Cheney with Christian Bale. And everybody said to me, this is a really good movie, and I watched it. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. So for, like, for particularly people like us who are political junkies, extraordinary. And everyone talks about the performance of Christian Bale and how come he looks ends up looking like a overweight 65-year-old man when he's actually a slim young fella. That's not the issue. Yeah. What really struck me about the Dick Cheney character that he portrayed, which seems to be very accurate, was Dick Cheney's role not just in the Bush presidency and the war in Iraq and all that sort of stuff, but Dick Cheney's role throughout the last 25, 30 years in the Republican Party and particularly his role during the Reagan period where he was behind the scenes, where he was involved in 79 in his own election mm. and the narrative that he spun in 79, 78, because he was involved with President Ford and Nixon and all these, so he's been mm. around for a long time. He, he was part of all those neocons, wasn't he? So he was part of the neocons. Paul Wolfowitz. And Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld Himself and yeah. Rumsfeld were old mates. Yeah. But what struck me is... People like that changed the story of America. So when Reagan started cutting taxes for the rich, he said that this would be A, efficient for the economy, but B, there had to be a morality story. And the morality story they came up with was that poor people are poor because they're not entrepreneurial. They are not risk takers. They are lazy. They right. are yeah. bumming the system. Yeah. Okay. Right? That's and a common team here as well, by they, the way. It is, but it is, and it's a very dangerous thing. And I, so I watched this as I was flying to Nairobi, and I thought, poor people are poor. If you think of the logic, because they're not entrepreneurial, therefore, if they're poor, it's their fault. Yeah. And when you go to Nairobi, what you see is poor people are the most entrepreneurial in the world. So on the streets of Nairobi, Everyone is buying, selling, taking a risk, hustling. Whatever poverty is, it is not about a lack of hustle. Yeah. And these people are buying and selling all the time as if their life depends on it. And sometimes it does. Yeah, it's relentless. It. And I was thinking about this relentless, as you say, entrepreneurial idea and how crazy it is for people to believe that poverty is a result of lack of risk-taking. The whole reason for poverty is you're in risk all the time. Yeah. And you're so anxious. And then that got me thinking about measurements of poverty, you know? And you hear all these things. Is it an income? Is it a threshold? Is it a wage? And I don't think it is. I actually think that the way I now look at poverty is that poverty is about time horizons. And it really struck me when I was in Africa. Explain that to that me. That poor people have very short time horizons. Okay. So every day they're anxious about paying the bills, about getting by. So not only can they not think about tomorrow, they can hardly think about the end of the day. And rich people are people who have the luxury 
of long time horizons. And by rich people, I mean people like ourselves, because we are, you know, incredibly well off in comparison to the vast majority of the yeah. world. We, so can, we can plan and, and exactly we can we plan. have opportunity. So if you think about poverty as being you cannot live in the future, you live in the present. Yeah. And everything you do is about getting by today. And then you think about being rich or being not being poor. It's about having time horizons of a month, six months, a year, five years, ten years. Yeah. And the very rich have 50-year time horizons because they don't have to worry about being paid. So they can make huge plans. And the average person in this country can make plans going out four or five years. So you think about we've got kids, you've got, what, five, six, seven kids between us, right? Six yeah. kids between us, right? When you talk to them, you talk to them, say, what would you like to do? Yeah, yeah. You're going to do your leave insert. What do you want to do after that? Where do you see yourself? All that stuff. That is a great luxury. Yeah. That is the difference. I, I think the whole pension system epitomizes that. It's actually putting money away. That's why I always find it difficult to actually think about a pension. <laughs> putting money away for when I'm, you know, 65, 70, I might not get there. <laughs> the chances are you will get there and you'll be the same Egypt <laughs> like me and we'll be sitting here doing this podcast <laughs> as two old crusties. But you think about it in that way, right? Now, poverty is about not having a future. Mm. That's the key. In a way, poverty, I've said it before, poverty obliterates the future because it means that the future is unavailable to poor people because you can't plan. And once you can't plan, you can't invest. And once you can't invest, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about personal endeavor into a long-term plan. And when you're sitting on, and I was doing it last Monday and Tuesday, sitting on the street in Nairobi, watching the world go by, what strikes me is not only are these people not entrepreneurial, they're the most entrepreneurial people I've ever met, but the reason they are entrepreneurial is because today matters much more than tomorrow. And the interesting yeah. thing about middle-class people is that tomorrow, the promise is tomorrow is going to be better than today, and so you live in a way, in the future. Right, okay. And that's the way I like to look at the difference between the haves, the haves not, the poor, the well-off, the African lived experience, and maybe the Europe. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pain experience, which gives us this ability to It's a very core instinct of like almost like the hunter-gatherer yeah. where you just, you get up in the morning and you have to make enough money or get enough food to survive till yeah. tomorrow morning. You know, and and really, then you do the same again tomorrow and the same again. And it's, you know, it, it goes for all poor across the world. It's I, really I funny, you know, in a way, you know, it really kind of, <laughs> I was thinking of this when I was sitting there and I was sitting on a crossroads in Nairobi, just watching the world go by. And you know that kind of Californian sense of live in the moment, live for now? Yeah. That's a luxury. The people in Kenya live for now, and the living in the moment is not some sort of meditational... Mindfulness. Exactly. This is actually existing. Mm. And existing is about, for them, living for today. So when you're talking about their entrepreneurial, tell us about that. How, How so? Well... What you see is people buying and selling all the time. But what really interests me is how do societies go from being poor to being reasonably well off? Mm. What you see is that it's not a lack of hustle. It's a lack of institutional stability. What we have in Europe is institutional stability. So we have reasonably good government, reasonably fair taxation. And, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah reasonably good education system open to reasonably a lot of people you have security on the street more or less you have a stake in society Mm. more or less what in africa they don't have the stake and what's interest me when i was there was the role of banking i know that banking gets a very bad rap in ireland because of the crisis and etc but having a banking system matters And I was thinking when I was there about John Hume. John Hume, and it was a large leap from Derry to Nairobi. I was going to say, yeah. John Hume set up the credit unions in Northern Ireland in the 1960s because he saw that access to credit Mm. gives poor people a stake in the future. So you can put money aside for your kids' education. Yeah. And you can plan for the future. And he saw that without access to credit, nationalist people, Catholic people in Northern Ireland, wouldn't actually fulfill their dreams, fulfill their objectives. And he set up the credit unions because, unfortunately, the banking system was sectarian. 
And what I saw in Africa this time, on a really optimistic note, John, was the extraordinary role of technology in creating a parallel banking system for these poor people. And this banking system is actually dragging them out of poverty because it's giving them the ability to live in the future. Right. And I saw that in a thing well, called M-Pesa. Go on, and explain I want to that talk, to me. So I want to talk in this podcast about technology on the ground in Africa and then how the African embracing of technology is leading to America and China playing out their trade war right now in Africa. Right. So first of all, let, let's start with M-Pesa. Explain that one to me. So Pesa is the Swahili word, now that I've become obviously fluent. Yeah, Jumbo. Jumbo, Jumbo. I love Jumbo. <laughs> yeah. I love it. But it's a Swahili word for money and M being mobile. M-Pesa is the most successful digital currency in the world. It's the most successful digital banking system in the world. So you hear all this stuff about Amazon Wallet yeah. and all this stuff. Hasn't got a patch on M-Pesa. Yeah. M-Pesa is a banking system which is now subscribed to by close to 80% of all Kenyans. I wow. think banking penetration in Kenya, old-fashioned banking, yeah. is 20%. So 80% of people do their banking through their mobile phone. Do we know the population of Kenya? Uh, 60 million. Right, okay. Big country. Ethiopia is 100 million. Mm. Tanzania, I think, is another yeah. maybe seven. So Kenya is the same as the UK. Huge place. Mm. Only 20% of people had ever, ever, ever been into a bank or any relationship with a bank. Right. So it was an entire informal economy. And the problem with informal economies, it's back to our idea, you have to buy and sell today. Yeah. There's no credit, there's no banking, there's no saving, there's no lending, whatever. Then a parallel system comes in called M-Pesa. And the reason I was interested in this was at every street corner in Kenya, there was a fella selling pay-as-you-go little airtime on mobile phones. And I was thinking, yeah. what's all this about? Because it seemed like the fella's hawking, you know? Yeah. And I asked the local guy and he said, oh, that's an M-Pesa seller. And I said, what's an M-Pesa seller? He says, he's kind of like a banker. These guys, these dudes don't look like bankers, okay? <laughs> Which is kind of nice. Yeah. They do not look like the fellas who are up in front of the banking committee, right. whatever, right? They're fellas. So what and I'm saying is... A bunch of Shawnees. Yeah, but what this is, it's really interesting. What this is, is it's a banking system based on Nokia phones, on SMS technology, the cheapest technology, Yeah. that you go to the M-Pesa banker who used to be selling you airtime. Yeah. He now sells you credit. You give him money, he sells you credit. That credit goes on your phone. You can then send that credit to something to somebody. You can pay for anything with that. What has happened is very, very quickly, what happened was a basic technology, SMS technology mm -hmm. on Nokia phones, and a basic want, which was the want for a credit banking system, came together in Kenya. And now all Kenyans use M-Pesa. It's 80% of Kenyans are involved in it. It's over 30% of GDP is traded on these. So you can walk into a shop. With your mobile phone. With your mobile phone and buy... Buy anything. And this is what the Silicon Valley tech wizards have been trying to achieve for years. Right. The Kenyans achieved this in the last 10 years with basic technology. Okay. First, it was meant to be a saving system. 
that you could use your airtime. So think about what was happening was Kenyans were buying airtime, yeah. mobile phone credit. Mm. They were sending that credit to their friends in the countryside. Their friends were trading that for money. So I'll give you 10 shillings, which is a small amount. And then you would sell the airtime to your mates for cash. Okay. That's how it started. Right. And then people said, oh, okay, if I can exchange the airtime for cash because I want to be on my phone, yeah. why don't we start saving using pay-as-you-go credit? Right. Or buy goods. Started. Yeah. And then why don't you start buying goods? And then why yeah. did you start? Buying? And suddenly you end up with a saving scheme, a trading scheme, and ultimately a micro-lending scheme so that I can actually lend somebody money. Now, the interesting, the amazing thing about how the world has changed is, that, let's say, for example, I have $100 in my M-Pesa mm. account and you want to borrow $50. Yeah. But I have no idea who you are because you are one of the millions of Kenyans on M-Pesa. They say, how do you get a credit rating from these people? How they do that is amazing. They give you a credit rating based on the number of times you top up your mobile phone. If you have a credit rating that tops up your mobile phone regularly yeah. over the last four or five years, the inference is you're good with money. You're, right. You manage you your money. You get a AAA rating. You get a AAA rating, and therefore you get a lower interest rate, and I lend to you. Wow. And the whole thing works. With the, yeah. So, so uh, how has this affected the economy? So this is the thing. It means that the, the technology has allowed Kenya to skip a generation or two of infrastructural building. Mm. That's the key. The technology is dramatically reducing the risk in these countries. And we don't see this at all because for us, technology is a different beast. For them, it's absolutely essential. So think about the credit rating. Think about the micro-lending. Yeah. Think about remittances. In the past, in Africa, if you wanted to send $15 or 15 euros to your mother in the countryside. The locals told me you had to give it to a bus driver in a bag of cash. Mm -hmm. That bus driver usually took 30% interest rate for the pleasure of depositing it with your ma in some remote village. Mm. And the chances are he mightn't have turned up or whatever, there's no security. He's gone, yeah. And pays it, does it through and a what, mobile phone. Well, just on security then, like what kind of security is there in terms of how open is it to hacking or? No, the, it's, it's, it's the government underwrites the system. Oh, okay. It is an extraordinary example of a banking system with no banks. Mm. That's the beauty. And this is how Kenya has managed to overleap some massive institutional problems. And I think it's really fascinating. And I think it makes a huge difference to what's going on in the world. Sounds amazing. But what does that mean then for the... Traditional banking system in Kenya. It means it's gone. Oh, really? But that's good. Okay. Because the traditional banking system never gave the small guy a chance to bank. Now, well, what, what about the central bank, though? If the central bank exists, and the central bank actually oversees and pays out the system. Mm. It means that the banks will obviously lend money to wealthy people, etc. But that, the, that when you need something as basic as a banking system, technology has brought it in. And I love this idea. Yeah. Because it again, it means that poor countries can get the institutions that they need without building the institutions from scratch. And that is something amazing. And of course, the now 
what they say in Kenya, there's three things, the three S's, which are smartphones, satellites, and sensors. Right. And this is, again, technology. So one of the big problems in Africa has always been that the agricultural farmers couldn't ever, ever get insurance against droughts or against crop failures. Right. Because there was no data. Now what you have is you have seeds that have sensors on the pack of seeds. You sell those pack of seeds to a farmer. That farmer with one mobile phone between right. all the farmers there yeah. can locate exactly where those seeds, so those seeds have a little little chip in them, okay? Right. The, the, pack, the bag, yeah. The bag. That can locate exactly where the seeds have been planted. They send that to a satellite. The satellite then gauges what the risk is and suddenly the poor farmer can get insurance. They could never wow. do before. So technology is having a massive, massive effect on what we used to call the third world. And we don't see that because we don't hear about it. So tell us where the, the China-US trade war is. How is it manifesting itself? So, okay. Here's the thing. All over the developing world, from China, from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, through all of Africa, through Indonesia, all these massive, massive populations have seen an extraordinary uptake in smartphones. Mm. A Chinese company called Techno is making smartphones available in Kenya for $27. The ones that cost 600 euros here. Really? Jeez. $27. So what you're seeing is a total change in the way in which the developing world is dealing with itself. Mm. And it's dealing with itself online. But online for us is Google and, you know, Googling stuff and increasing our worldview. In the developing world, online is Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. These right. are the dominant, dominant platforms. So these are all American companies. Mm. So in Africa, America owns attention. America has the attention of what they call the global south, the third world, the developing yep, world. Yep, right? yep. But the Americans, through Facebook, have the attention of everybody, but they don't know how to make money. Because Facebook's model is selling advertising. But there's no advertising available in low-income countries. So they have the attention, which is the holy grail in the United States, yeah. but they can't make money. The Chinese, on the other hand, through their Facebook, WeChat, have figured out how to make money from poor people. Oh. They sell them games. Gaming is what the Chinese sell through WeChat. So they sell them games, apps, etc. Okay? Right, okay. Because Chinese love to game. Now, of course, Africans, Americans are always saying, what's the biggest unicorn in Africa? And they're always looking for unicorns. Mm -mm. And is there ever going to be an African unicorn? There is one. It's called Sportpaiser. Sportpaiser, I know you don't know your football, <laughs> but there's a football team called Everton across. Oh, yeah. If you look across Toffees. from Dunleary, if you, exactly, if you look across from Dunleary, you look straight across, you will find Goodison Park. Yeah. It's about 70 miles across yeah. there, right? Yeah. Everton are sponsored by a company called Sportpaiser. Sportpaiser is a Kenyan-Bulgarian gambling platform. Wow. So you think Bulgaria and Kenya coming together, and they figured out that the way you make money online in Africa, in China, in India, is not by trying to sell them advertising, but you sell them apps, gambling apps, 
gaming apps, etc. Right. So let's come back to America and China. If you look at the American business model, Facebook make, and it's reckoned, mm. $27 per annum per customer in the United States and advertising revenue. Okay. In the developing world, they make only 80 cents per customer per annum. Right. So they have to figure out a new way of doing it. They can't do it. The Chinese understand how to make money from poor people through gambling, gaming, selling apps. The Chinese are coming in and they're making their footprint in Africa. And where are they making it? In Rwanda, to the south of Kenya. And the extraordinary thing is, if Ireland is the location for all the advertising revenue of Facebook and Google and Instagram and WhatsApp in Europe, Rwanda is going to be that country in Africa. Jack Ma, head of Alibaba, was just recently in in Rwanda, signed a huge deal to make sure that Rwanda is the center of all Chinese e-commerce in Africa. So the end of the story, the end of my trip is, Rwanda is the Ireland of Africa. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. Today, I am delighted to be able to speak to Robert Fisk. I remember when Fallujah became the center of resistance to the Americans and to the Shiites. This is 2004. I went down to Fallujah one day and I talked to... I mean, those days you could get away with it without having your head chopped off. And outside a mosque, which was funded by the Saudis, uh, there were a pile of videotapes. This is pre-DVD, really. And I thought, what are they watching? So purchasing in huge numbers. And I bought some, took them back to my hotel in Baghdad, put them on. They were all execution. What they were were videotapes of executions, clearly of Caucasians wearing black and white shirts, so they were Russian soldiers, being executed by Chechen butchers. Actually butchers, people who knew how to slaughter animals, and they would face the camera, they wouldn't know what was going to happen. Suddenly this knife, and they'd try and cope with the pain, and then you'd flood of blood, and you you know. And I realised at once, these were teaching aids. These were attempts to teach those in Fallujah, how to kill. And it was done with a knife. They were slaughtering animals. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.